Well, about five years ago, the city of Chicago was fixed with rapt attention to the skies. They were about to witness a man doing the unthinkable, the unimaginable. A man was going to walk a tightrope. Nick Lewenda had done it before as generations of his family of the Walendas had done. He had gone over Niagara Falls. He had gone over the Grand Canyon. But now he was going to climb to 700 feet in height. He was going to traverse a wire that is two inches wide. And he was going to do so with all of the winds that a Chicago fall would bring. Now, Nick is a God-fearing Christian man and gives all the glory and honor to God. But I thought such a feat simply can't just be talked about. It needs to be seen with our own eyes. So let's go back five years to the city of Chicago and let's watch Nick do his thing. All right, Chi-Town, let's do this, baby. You guys rock. Listen to that roar. There's some wind. did it you got this thing up nice and tight you're amazing i'm coming let's see if i can run well maybe i hit the edge of the building there we go praise praise god pretty amazing huh 700 feet in the air uh, his wife, come on, come in, come in. His kids watching. Why? Because what he was experiencing, what he was endeavoring to do was a life and death situation. There were no cables. There were no safety nets. 700 feet. One misstep. Uh, one gust of wind. And that event would have changed everything. Now, why would I show that video? It's a pretty amazing video, but the reason why I show it is I think what Solomon is telling us today and what he's told us throughout this series in Ecclesiastes is that life is like walking a tightrope. That it's a delicate endeavor. That uh, a decision you make, a mistake that you make has harrowing uh, responses or consequences. That sometimes circumstances like a gust of wind can come and change what was supposed to be something of victory to be utter defeat. And we need to recognize this morning that life is a lot like that. We are traversing this very, very difficult thing called life. And any one singular decision can knock us back. It can knock us down. It can take us out of the game altogether. Now, if you notice, and this is where I want this word picture to come to life for you, and I think it will help you in the days to come. The only thing that Nick had was a bar. 
Did you notice that? This bar, this pole that he had. I want you to know it was about 39 feet long. It weighed over 30 pounds. Now, scientists will tell me, it's way beyond my science, that it has to do with the issue of inertia. And really what it is, is it takes your instability and it begins to spread it out so that though you are unstable, that bar brings stability. I want you to know this morning, and I hope this helps you to recognize that what Solomon is saying is that you and I as Christ followers need God's wisdom as our stabilizing bar. We're going to walk this thing called life, and it's going to be difficult at times. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to have some difficulties. When he traversed the Grand Canyon, the winds got so bad, can you believe it? He stopped and knelt down on the wire. And he just sat there. And he says, I gotta wait until it's safe for me to walk again. There are times in life where it's going to be difficult for us, where things are going to come, and it involves life and death decisions. It has life and death implications. And God has brought his word and he's brought it to Solomon and said, the way that you and I walk the tightrope of life is to bring wisdom into it. And wisdom, my friends, stabilizes us when we're unsteady. And for some of us this morning, life feels like that tightrope. Life feels like we're about to lose control. And God says that wisdom is here for you. And he, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so God is saying, listen, if you want that stabilizing force in your life, as you traverse the tightrope of life, you need to fear me. You need to know me. And we have come to realize that is the good life. The good life is the wisdom that is found in the God who is bigger and greater than anything in this world. And as we place ourselves under... on this tightrope. Now, for many of you, maybe today you're saying, I could use more wisdom. Well, the Bible says in the book of James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, God gives it to you without finding fault. God wants to give you that stabilizer in your life so you are able to weather every moment of your life. So now, with that in mind, with knowing why we need wisdom, why we need it in our hands to do what God is calling us to in living this life, we're going to see two ways or two reasons why wisdom is essential in our text this morning. We're going to see, first of all, that wisdom is essential, first and foremost, when dealing with those in authority. When dealing with those in authority. Let's pick up where we left off at chapter 8 from last week. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. 
For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Let's pause there. The first place that we need wisdom, we need that stabilizing bar, is in dealing with those whom God has placed in authority over us. Now let's talk about that. He says you need to keep the king's commands. Well, how appropriate, right? How ironic that the king is telling us, keep my commands. And here we run into the issue that we don't have kings. Our only king is King Jesus. And so, is this scripture just not appropriate for us altogether? Well, we allow scripture to interpret scripture. And what it says here in the book of Ecclesiastes is reaffirmed in Romans chapter 13, where it says, we who are under the uh, oversight of King Jesus are to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. We are to obey. We are to submit to them. Well, what are the governing authorities? Well, for a child, it's mom and dad. Uh, for uh, a child, it's the teacher or the principal or, or the administration at the school. For, for us, it's our employers. It's, it's those who are in government over us. In the church, it's the elders who lead and shepherd the flock of God. We've got numerous authorities. You may leave this place and because Pastor Tim went too long, you'll be late for lunch and you'll zoom out on Bliss Road and, and Sugar Girl's Finest with the governing authority power that they have will pull you over. We have a lot of authorities, a lot of people who get to tell us what to do. And what Solomon recognizes is that we're going to need wisdom in how to deal with those people because they're not always going to be the nicest of people. They're not always going to be the wisest of people. They're not always going to be the most righteous of people. And so what do we do when we're dealing especially with difficult governing authorities around us? What Solomon says is you deal with them wisely, not like a fool. And so notice he's going to tell us three ways that a fool deals with leadership above him, the authorities that are over him, and three ways that the wise do. Write these down. I think it's incredibly helpful. Number one, the first way a fool deals with authority is he pushes off their commands. He pushes off their commands. Verse two, keep the king's commands. Some of us this morning can look back and we can see that we have pushed off the commands of those in authority over us again and again and again. Young person, you told your parents you're not going to do what you what they want you to do. You've told your teachers you're not going to do the assignment they've told you to finish. Uh, for you as an employee, you've told your boss, I'm not going to do it. I know what's written in my job description. I know what is written on, on my uh, to-do list. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going to push that away. I'm going to do everything in my power to go against what that is. The Bible says that is a foolish way to live. And here's the reason why. Because of the oath that was given to the governing authorities. He says, because the Lord has given the king an oath. What that means is the Lord put me in charge. The Lord put that governing authority in charge. We know that there's not a single power, not a single authority in all of heaven, whether we like them or not, whether we voted for them or not, whether we give them high marks or not, or whether we uh, believe in their cause or not, that God has put those people in their place for such a time 
as this. And they're there. And so for a Christ follower to say, well, I'm not going to do what the people that God has put in authority over me is to not only say no to that authority, but to say no to the authority of God who's over them. They're just middle management. Foolish step number two, to allow your passions to get the best of you. He goes on, he says, do not be hasty. And the idea here is that the command is given from the king and the person hears it and they're like, I don't want to do it. And I'm not going to do it. And for that matter, I'm going to tell you what I think of you. You're a no good, rotten, dumb, stupid boss. I don't like you. And to be quite honest with you, I should be in that role. Because I'm way smarter. And I can lead this thing way better than you can. Maybe you say that with your words. Maybe you say that with action. And you storm off and you feel better about yourself. And the Bible says you're a fool. You're a fool. The Bible again says in the book of James, everybody quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it's really, really easy. Let's just be honest. It is really, really easy to badmouth those in authority. Kids, it's easy to badmouth your parents. Students, it's easy to badmouth your teachers. Uh, employees, it's easy to badmouth your employers. Citizens, it's easy to badmouth your government. We make a living doing it. It's easy to do. They're incompetent. They, they are corrupt. We, we can come up with all manner of things of those in authority over us and we can tell them what we think of them and where we think they should go. And we do it to our own demise. Don't let your passions get the best of you. How many of us have said something in a hasty way only to regret it? These are the fools who speak before they should, uh, before they think. Number three, the third step of a fool is to participate in ungodly rebellion. To participate in ungodly rebellion. Do not take your stand in evil. So you don't like what the king has said. You don't like what the governing authority has said in your life. And you start conspiring with others. Well, I don't like it. Do you like it? No, I don't like it. Well, let's form a committee. Let's talk about this. Let's get together and let's let's compare notes on what we don't like about them. Let's compare what what we think should be done and let's let's put a task force together and, and let's let's make it happen. Now, now right away, I've added a precursor to the word rebellion. Do not participate in ungodly Rebellion, And I need to be careful because to sit there and say that there's no place for rebellion uh, strikes out with three strikes. Number one, our forefathers, the disciples, rebelled against the commands and mandates of men. And they said we're to preach Christ. And you're telling us that we can't preach Christ. We're going to choose to follow Christ and His Word, God and His message. And that means we're going to rebel against you. In a far more finite way, as Americans, we are children of revolution. This country was founded on a rebellion. A rebellion with the result of taxation without representation. And so we enjoy this American experience we're a part of, and we need to recognize that there was a place and, and there is a moment where people have the right to rebel. 
What about in our church tradition? We are Protestants. That is, we protested. We're protesters. You see, in 1517, Martin Luther got tired of watching the Catholic Church tell people you can buy your way out of hell. And he said, enough's enough. And I can't do this anymore. And I'm not going to stand idly by and do and allow this travesty to take place. People's lives hang in the balance. And so he nailed 95 grievances to the church door. And he said, enough is enough. So what is the text telling us? Is there a time to rebel? Maybe. Maybe. But make sure in your rebellion, listen to me, it's going to sound weird, that you're as godly as possible. That you're as godly as possible. That the right cause has the right means to accomplish it. So that means you can't slander, you can't backbite, you can't gossip, you can't, you can't uh, think ill, you can't scheme in sinful ways. Uh, there's a whole manner of things. All the things by which we do when we're unhappy with those in authority over us that we do. And we think, well, our cause is right. Therefore, since our cause is right... We can do whatever we have to to accomplish that end. And the Bible says that's not the way it's done. That that's the way of the fool. Now, I need you to recognize this. Listen, this isn't a black and white thing. As we look at different moments when decisions were made, we need to recognize that at times of rebellion, some Christians will agree with you and some won't. It just is what it is because there's no uh, textbook on this is when Christian you should rebel. And let me give you a, a point in reference of, of history. In Nazi Germany, there were two individuals who were most listened to on the radio uh, before World War II. Those two individuals, of course, you know the first one, Adolf Hitler. The second was a pietistic uh, Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was known for his incredible love for the Lord. Some of Bonhoeffer's books are some of my favorite books I've ever read. And Bonhoeffer would make a decision that would be questioned by Christians uh, since the time of his acting uh, in that he, he tried to be a part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, a pastor. And he saw the great evil that Hitler was doing and, and he had put in his mind that the best thing, the most godly thing to do was to end another man's life. And that has been questioned by Christians since that moment. And you've got to recognize if you're going to make a decision, you're going to stand up and not every Christian is going to agree with you because it's going to be some level of conscience and some level of, of wisdom. That's why we need wisdom in these decisions. That's why we need wisdom in these moments. But, but listen, before you rebel, before you lose your cool, before you storm out, before you make a scene, here's the way of the wise. Solomon says, first and foremost, in your role, pursue uprightness and obedience. There is a right way. Notice verse 4, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? For whoever keeps a command will know no evil, and a wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Wisdom, that, that weighted pull, when authorities are lording it over you, is there for you to first of all say, my first job is as far as it depends on me to be the best 
subject under their authority. That means kids to be the best kid that I can be for my parents, to be the best student I can be in the classroom, to being the best employee I can be in the workplace, the best... uh, I'm going to, as best as I can, obey the rules that govern me. And notice what the author says here is that will allow him to know no evil. The idea here is that his conscience will be clear. Is your conscience clear that you are the best follower or subject to the governing authorities over you? Or are there some areas where you can obey a little better? Number two. So you've got this governing authority in your life and they're wreaking havoc. What are you supposed to do? Well, pick your battles carefully. The text says that there's a right time, there's a proper time and a, and a just way. Verse 6, for there's a time and a way for everything, which harkens back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time to tear down and there's a time to build up. And we need wisdom. And so what we need to recognize this morning is we live in a time where wisdom is necessary as to what battles we're going to fight. And let's just face it, the battles are getting more difficult in our day. And for some, it's more than others. So let me explain. For those that find themselves in corporate America, those battles are becoming more numerous. For those that find themselves in the public sector, that is municipalities and and in public education, you're going to struggle with that. I, I was talking with one of our educators here. And they were saying that this picking of battles is really, really hard. That there's a lot of uh, descriptions and declarations and definitions that are being forced upon the believer to articulate that goes against their conscience. And, And he was telling me, I have to ask the question, is this the line I draw? Is this where I take my stand? And I've got to think through that and pray through that and ask God for wisdom in it. And it reminds me back to the time of captivity for the children of Israel. The Babylonians had taken them captive and had taken a bunch of their young men and taken them to Babylon. We know their names as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those men had to watch their culture change. They had to watch the things that were important to them be tossed away. And they had to watch the things that they held in high allegiance to be thrown away as nothing. But they found a way. That is until they picked their battle. You see, at some point, they couldn't do it any longer. The statue of Nebuchadnezzar came out, and the command was everybody bow down and worship him as God. And these three Hebrew boys said, we can't do that. Oh, we stretched. We stretched to do what you asked of us. But this is a bridge too far. And brothers and sisters, there may be a time, there may be a place where it's a bridge too far. And you may have to stand and be by yourself as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did where they stand and say, here I stand, I can do no other. And let the consequences fall as they will. And we know that they were put into a fire. And I'm wondering if they're thinking, was it the right decision? And we know the rest of the story that they were not consumed. Listen to me. Don't take that as a prescription that if you stand for what is right, Jesus is going to show up and you're not going to burn. Because 99.9% of the time, people burned. 
And we need to recognize that. And we need to know that God's got a plan in that altogether. But all of this tells us, be very careful on your battles. Pick wisely. Finally, look for the God-given processes to address your issue. You don't like how something's going? Notice in verse 5, protest in a just way. There's a right way to do it. Joseph did it right when dealing with his brothers in Genesis. Nathan did it right with King David when he confronted him about adultery. And Nehemiah did it before a king during a time of captivity. There's a right way to protest. There's a right way to be heard. And so maybe you've got some issues. Have you exhausted all God-given processes to address your grievance? Find them. Utilize them. Do it again and again. Because in that, you will find wisdom. So who are you struggling with today? Who are you needing to say maybe no to? Instead of storming off and getting angry, there's a wise way to deal with those in authority. God in our country has given us a lot of leverage in areas. Listen, there's a lot of places and services and people in greater authority that we can hearken to, even within our government system. You know how we get rid of people that we don't like leading us? They're called elections. And there's another one coming in two years. They're already on to it, right? We haven't even finished counting this one yet. And so there's ways that we can do it. Be wise in addressing those in authority. You need God's wisdom to do it. And I pray that God will give it to you in your hour of need. There's a second one. And the second one is, is we need God's wisdom to understand the anomalies of life. That is the mystery of life. That is the inconsistencies of life. Notice, pick up in verse 7. Solomon says this, For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before the Lord. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are those wicked uh, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said to this, this is also vanity. Let's stop there. What in the world is Solomon talking about? What Solomon is saying in this text becomes crystal clear when we see he's saying about life, I don't get it. I don't get it. I look at life and I think I'm a smart and wise man and there are things in life, there's inconsistencies, there's inequities that just don't seem to make sense. And he speaks to them. There's four of them. Write these down. Four things that don't make sense to us. Number one, death. 
Death doesn't make any sense to us for those who are alive. It doesn't make any sense. And here's why. We don't know when we're going to die. And we don't know how we're going to die. I want you to think for a moment right now in your chair. I want you to think about when am I going to die? And then I want you to think about how are you going to die? And I'm going to tell you there's a really, really good chance you're going to be wrong on both accounts. Because you have no earthly idea. I have no earthly idea of when and how I'm going to die. That's what makes death so scary. Because it comes upon us in many ways without warning. And so we just need to recognize we have a 100% chance of dying. We don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. But it will. And so we need to do something with it. Number two. The second thing we need to do something with is the difficulties of life. The difficulties of life. Verse 9 tells us that we have no power over man to his hurt. What it means is we don't have the power over our trials. And so today, as you're sitting, everything seems to be going well on Sunday. Something this week, we're a big enough church that something this week is going to become a very difficult thing for one of us. Some trial, some tragedy is going to befall one of us. And we're going to be ill-prepared and in many ways ill-equipped for it because that's what makes difficulties difficult. We're not ready for them. We're not ready to take them and do what we need to with them. Maybe it'll be relationally. Maybe it'll be financially. Maybe it'll be physically. Maybe it'll be spiritually. Nonetheless, we have no idea. I, I, I am so encouraged, and I know many of you are, to have heard that Jared Williamson is home after a month in the hospital. Yeah. For those that don't know Jared, Jared's a 40-year-old guy from our church. He's got a wonderful family. He may even be watching online right now. And, and he was coming home. He's a college football coach. He was coming home late Saturday night uh, about a month ago from a college football game that he had been participating in. He's going home to see his wife. He's going home to see his kids. And, and what happens? In a blink of an eye, a drunk driver comes and crushes his car. And for the next month, he's in intensive care, learning how to walk and how to use his arms and getting mended back. In that moment, I can assure you of something. With all respect, Jared had no idea what was coming his way. No idea. That's the problem with those difficulties in life. We have no idea that they're coming. And it's easy in those moments to ask questions. Why, God? Why is this happening? What is going on? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. Number three, how about the deception of life? So Solomon says, okay, verse 10, I'll go to a funeral. And notice what he says, follow the logic. I go and I saw the wicked buried. Don't forget the wicked. The wicked are being buried. The wicked used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised. Wait a minute. How could that be that a wicked person could be praised for all the good stuff he's doing in the church? The answer is because he deceived everybody. He deceived everybody. He showed all kinds of righteousness, but in the end, he was evil. He was wicked. And for some of us, we have been deceived by people. Maybe we've been deceived by a spouse. Maybe we've been deceived by a boss or a business partner. Maybe we were deceived by a politician. Maybe we were deceived, God help that this happens here, deceived by your pastor. 
You believed one thing and the other thing became a reality and the hurt and the pain and the sorrow that has come. And you're asking, why God? Why did this happen? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Number four, you have death, you have uh, difficulties, you have deception. Finally, you have the delays of God. The decisions of God may be another way to put it. Why is it, God, that you allow the evil to not be incarcerated? Why is it, God, that you allow the good men to die young and the bad men to live forever? Why, God? Why, God? And the answer is, help me out, we don't know. We don't know. And so what do we do? What does wisdom do when those questions in life come? What is that balancing bar? The answer is humility. I don't know, God. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not infinite like you are. And so I'm going to humble myself and recognize I don't get it. Let me throw some quotes your way, and hopefully they will just help uh, this in the process. The first quote comes, and it says this about life. What we have here is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. If you don't get it, that's the reason why it's said. Life is hard. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Another individual, William Durant, said this, Our knowledge is a receding mirage in an expanding desert of ignorance. Again, you don't get it, that's the purpose. We are finite, friends. We don't have all the answers. To which a Persian proverb put it this way when he said, He who knows not and knows not that he knows not, he's a fool, shun him. He who knows not and knows he knows not is simple, teach him. He who knows and knows not he knows is asleep, wake him. And he who knows and knows he knows, he is wise, follow him. Now keep that up there because half of the crowd has no idea what I just read. Focus in on that last statement. When you know what you know, and you know why you know it, you're wise. And, and the reason why is you know what you don't know. And and for young people, this is hard because you're know-it-alls. And, and you're not original to it because I was a know-it-all when I was younger, and my parents were know-it-alls when they were younger. It just comes part and parcel with being young to think you know it all. But life comes in and these mysteries and these anomalies come in and they begin to push what we think we know and it reminds us that by the time we're all done with this, we knew very little. We knew very little. And so wisdom, when the mysteries and anomalies of life come our way, wisdom humbles us. I am finite, God, you're infinite. I am simple and you are complex. I am low and you are high. I am weak and you are strong. And just continue with the superlatives. God, I'm nothing. You're everything. And when humility gets you there, you're walking in wisdom. And what that will do, what the mysteries of life will do, is my closing point. It will then allow you to live with the right attitude. So what do we do with the governing authorities over us? What do we do with the anomalies of life? We do two things, and it allows us to walk this life without falling to our death. It's what will balance us out. Notice in verse 12, what are we called to do? We are called to fear God. 
respect God, to revere God, to extol God's greatness, to put God as the first and foremost, to make Him preeminent in all things. That's what it means to fear God, to worship Him as God, as greater than yourself. As the greatest thing in the world, you acclaim and you speak and you declare that God is everything and we are nothing. Then, that means that I'm going to look at God's perspective of this thing called life, not my own. Then I'm going to allow God to set the priorities of this thing called life, not myself. And so I am speaking to this God who is greater and smarter and wiser than I am and more powerful than I ever will be. And I say, God, you're it. You're it. And so I'm going to live life above the sun from your perspective. I'm going to do it your way. And you know what God says to those individuals who will live life above the sun from his perspective with his priorities? Notice verse 15. He says, you'll have fun. You'll have fun. You'll be able to eat and drink and be merry. Why? Because you will know and recognize whatever difficulties you have with authorities, there's a higher authority. And that higher authority says the evil won't get away with it. That there's a day coming where I will avenge, I will repay. So be patient and wait. And when the mysteries and the difficulties and the anomalies of life come, You don't throw your hands up and say it's hopeless. You hand those issues over to God and you become hopeful. God, you've got it figured out. God, you've got a plan. God, you've got a purpose. God, you've got a meaning for this. And so I'm going to put it in your hands and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to rest in you. And when we do that, we're able to eat, we're able to drink, we're able to be merry. We are able, my friends, to live the good life.